There's one thing that stands out in my in my memory, of course, from uh, the early days of spending time with uh, Grandma Hodden. Uh, the year that uh, my parents moved to Sault Ste. Marie when I was uh, barely 13 years old, I spent uh, several months with Grandma Hodden before I actually moved, followed them to the Sioux. And that was an experience I'll never forget. Every night after we had supper, uh, Grandma would... Uh, you know, she would open the Bible in the in the living room, and Mrs. Lane was a lady, an old lady that Grandma looked after. And Mrs. Lane was an old lady that had hardening of the arteries, they told us, and she would rub her head all the time. And she rubbed her head so much that she rubbed the hair right off her head. But she was an interesting old old lady in person, but in any event, Grandma looked after this old lady, and so every night after supper, there'd be Mrs. Lane, and there'd be Grandma, and myself, and Uncle Jim, and... Uh, Grandma would open the Bible and she would read a passage of Scripture and then we'd have prayer together. But the interesting thing at Grandma's house is that the devotions uh, were not boring. A lot of times, you know, young people, when you're young, uh, sometimes devotions, I'm just honest here, they, they can be a little boring and tedious for a young person. But at Grandma's house they weren't. And there was something about the way Grandma proceeded in all this that was not. And I remember the thing that Grandma would say often after she would have prayer, you see. and She didn't uh, make us, she didn't impose anything on us, but we just felt comfortable in her presence as she would go ahead and, and lead in these devotions. And uh, she prayed every night. She prayed for all the members of her family. She didn't only pray for her own family. She prayed for others, of course, in the community. And the interesting thing that there were many people who were not related biologically to Grandma Hodden who called her Grandma Hodden and about for whom she cared uh, deeply and greatly. So it wasn't just a, you know, a natural human type of, uh, I just want to pray for mine. But she did pray for her own family. Every night she prayed for her family. And she would go through and she would name them as she prayed for them. And the one phrase that I will never, ever, ever forget and this was Grandma, and it was very simple. She was uh, she she was uh, she had a simple approach to the Lord, but it was a real communion that she had. And she said, uh, "Lord, pray for Reg Reg for example, Reg, and I pray for his family." She would name all of them, and then she would say, "I want to pray for each one of them," and then she would pray. She she pray that they would be saved. That they would come to a, what Wayne is talking about here this morning and sharing with, to the real identity of what a real Christian looks like. And she was praying that they would be saved, and then she would say this before it's too late. She would say that over and over and over and over again. Because in, grandpa, in, in Grandma's mind, she knew that there was an opportunity for all of these wonderful things to occur. And, but there would come a time when the door of opportunity would close. And then it would be too late. And so she would pray before it is too late. So I remember that this morning as we begin. I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bible with me. I love opening the pages of the Scriptures. I'm opening this morning in my Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2. And I want to begin to read at the first verse of the second chapter in Mark. And... Um, what I would like to do this morning is just simply uh, come in and immerse ourselves in the in the text. 
and uh, be instructed by it as we proceed. We have been now for several weeks talking about a new humanity, what it's like for a person who becomes a new creation in Christ and is born again by the Word and Spirit and becomes a new creation, a new creature. This is a new kind of human being. A new humanity has been our subject. And uh, so what I'd like to do just in a moment is we, as we read this together, beginning at verse number 1, but I want to first read a quotation that I found rather interesting. And this quotation has to do with the miraculous aspect of the Scriptures. And as you think about it this morning, it is true that the Bible itself is a miraculous book. It speaks about the miraculous realm. The Gospel itself is based on a miraculous or miraculous occurrences. And here's the quotation by Frederick Farrar. And listen to his words. He says, However skillfully the modern ingenuity of semi-belief may have tampered with supernatural interpositions, it is clear to every honest and unsophisticated mind that if miracles be incredible, and the word incredible is used as if 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 they be, you know, not credible, not reasonable. If miracles be incredible, then he says Christianity is false. Let me read it again now. However skillfully the modern ingenuity of semi-belief may have tampered with supernatural interpositions, it is clear to every honest and unsophisticated mind that if miracles be incredible, Christianity is false. So therefore, and his words are, Uh, taken to those who would try to water down and dampen down all of the scriptures to say that anything in the Bible that uh, speaks about the miraculous realm uh, must not be understood that way. Uh, It didn't really happen that way. And he is basically concluding, as any honest person would, that if you take the miraculous realm and remove it from the scriptures, then you must conclude that Christianity is false because it's based on the miraculous. And so... Having said that, of course, we come to the second chapter of Mark and we want to read this passage, the first 12 verses, and we'll comment as we we read. It says, And Jesus, having returned to Capernaum, after some days it was rumored rumored about that he was in the house, probably uh, Simon Peter's house. Now, he had returned to Capernaum. It's interesting, it says, After some days, several days had passed, then we wonder, well, what happened? What was he doing during those several days? But after several days had uh, passed and he was in Simon Peter's house, the rumor or the word uh, got out to people that he was there. And so many people gathered together there that there was no longer room for them, not even around the door. And so when the people found that Jesus was there in this house, probably Simon Peter's house, then the people began to gather there at the, home, at the home, inside the home, and around the home. And the door was so crowded with people at this point in time that it was impossible to enter in through the door. It says there was no longer uh, room for them, not even around the door, and he was discussing the Word. Now, I found that part very fascinating. He was discussing the Word. Uh, what would it be like to listen to Jesus in Simon Peter's home discussing the Word. What does that mean he was discussing the Word? It means that he was taken, remember remember who he is now, he is God made flesh, 
He is God in human form. He is God made flesh. And he is opening up the scriptures. The scriptures would be from the book of Genesis right through with to Malachi. And uh, while he is uh, seated in Simon Peter's home, he is discussing the scriptures. And uh, he is talking about the different passages of scripture in the book of Genesis, perhaps in the Psalms, perhaps, perhaps in the prophets. And he is uh, opening up the word to them in the home. Remember how he opened up the word to the two men on the road to Emmaus on that particular day of the resurrection? And as he opened up the word uh, to them, it says they said later that their hearts uh, were burning within them, meaning, meaning the spirit, their spirits were stimulated so by the word of God that he was preaching and presenting to them that their hearts were just their spirit, the spirit inside them. Not the physical heart. The spirit inside them was just stirred up, made alive. This is what it was like in Simon Peter's home on this particular day because every time, each and every time, that Jesus, God in human form, came to show us who God really is. Every time he took the words of the scripture that are inspired by God himself. Every time he commented on them. Every time he presented them. He presented them in a marvelous power of the Spirit so that they penetrated into the hearts of people in a unique way. A way that has never happened in that very same way even since. It has happened in kind, in, in similitude. But I want to impress upon everyone's mind this morning, including myself, the power of the presentation of the Word that is occurring in this house, Simon Peter's house, on this particular day. And the people are drawn to this in such a way that you can't get in the door. You can't even get close to the door. And something really remarkable begins to occur. It says in verse number 3 that then uh, they came bringing a paralytic to him who had been picked up and was being carried by four men. Paralytic is a person, a man who is paralyzed. (laughs) It means he's not able to walk. Um... All the degree of paralysis, we don't know, but he was paralyzed. He wasn't able to walk. And he was being carried by four men. And when they could not get in uh, to the place, and when they could not get him to a place in front of Jesus, uh, because of the throng, see, and I'm impressed as I read this by when they could not. Uh, when they could not do what they had uh, planned to do, when they could not do what they normally would do, we want to get him to Jesus. Well, how would we get him to Jesus? Well, we'll, care, well we, he can't walk to Jesus. He's paralyzed. Now, we're, we're going to take him to Jesus. These four men decided we are going to take him to Jesus. Now, is it possible that uh, one, two, or more of these four men had at some point in the previous few days, as Jesus had been there for several days, people didn't know about it in vast numbers until now, but is it possible that some of them had heard this word being proclaimed? I, we don't know. doesn't say. So we can't go there. We just wonder. But somehow in these men, there was this faith. There was this confidence. There was this absolute certainty. There was this uh, knowledge. And we can get him in front of Jesus, he's going to be made well. Now, in the new humanity, the new man, 
what is so marvelous and unique about the new man, the new creation in Christ, is faith. This new creation in Christ is a man, a woman, a person who understands what faith is. So we're going to look a little bit more deeply at what the faith really is like and how faith really manifests itself. What is it? So when they could not get in, get him to a place in front of Jesus because of the throng, then they had to find out some other way. See, they were not deterred. I find this to be to be fascinating. They did not say, "Well, now we just I guess it isn't our time. It must not be the Lord's will. If the Lord's if, if it's the Lord's will, Lord, open the open the door and all of this." You see, they just said. Uh, somehow, deep within them, they knew that they were to take this man and put him in front of Jesus. And when the ordinary, the usual way, uh, the door to that, the opportunity for that had closed, then within them was, well, we're going to get him there in front of Jesus, and so how can we do it? We can't get him through the normal, usual way, but we've got to get him in front of Jesus, and so how will we do that? So, somehow, one of them, maybe two of them, somebody said, well, you know, we can get up onto the roof. Well, what good is that going to do us? Huh? What, what will it uh, help to get him get onto the roof? We want to get him in front of Jesus. Well, if we get him to the roof, nobody's on the roof, and the, and, the, and the walkway to the roof is clear, we can get him to the roof, and once we get him to the roof, we can remove the portions of the roof. We can do that. And he's on this cot, which is rather a heavy sleeping bag, and there's four of us, and we can get on the corners of this, and we can lower him down, and we can get him right into the front in the presence of Jesus. And in their heart is this absolute conviction and knowledge and certainty and confidence. We can get him into the front of Jesus. Then he's going to be made well. And it says again, when they could not get him to a place in front of Jesus because of the throng, they dug through the roof above him. And when they had scooped out an opening, they let him down quickly. They, they let down the thickly padded quilt or mat upon which the paralyzed man lay. Verse number 5, and when Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. Now the thing about faith in this new creation, the new kind of humanity... And the one thing that really distinguishes a new covenant person is uh, faith. Again, I have a note in front of me. It's a question. It says, what distinguishes, what distinguishes the Scriptures? What sets the Scriptures apart from all other books? You ever thought about that? What sets this book apart from all other books? There are many other books in the world that are known you know, as religious Scripture. But they're not like this one. So what distinguishes this book from all other books and what distinguishes the new covenant man, a man who has been recreated and made new, born again of the Spirit, what distinguishes him from all other men? And the answer to it is that in these particular individuals, in this book and in the life of the new, this new kind of humanity, is the reality of the spiritual realm is very, very real. The the spiritual realm is very, very real. The realm of the Spirit is real in the Scriptures. 
and the realm of the spirit is real in the heart and in the life and in the mind and in the thinking of the regenerated man. And this is what distinguishes faith, real faith, from just somebody who has strong will. Just somebody who's really determined. There are a lot of determined people in the world. And determined people will get things done that people who are not determined will not get done. But determined people, by itself, cannot bring about the healing of anyone. Because carnal determination and confidence in the flesh can only go so far. But faith, biblical faith is different. Biblical faith is a confidence, but it is a confidence that's on the inside. It is not a confidence just on the mind. It's not a confidence just from the human personality. It's a confidence that is in the heart or in the inner man because the spirit realm is real to him. The reality of the spiritual realm is there within him and he knows on the inside. There's a revelation on the inside of the reality of the spiritual realm. He knows inside. If I get this man in front of Jesus, he will be made well. And it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralyzed man, and this is interesting now, very fascinating, because he didn't say immediately to the paralyzed man what most would have expected he would say. Why did they bring him there? They brought him there because he was paralyzed. And they want Jesus to speak the words, because they know, they have observed this, that he has the power of the authority to command. Whatever he says, it is done. They are expecting Jesus to command him to walk or to command this affliction to leave him. But the words of Jesus to the paralyzed man, he said these words, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And I'm going to read from the Amplified Bible, Your sins are forgiven you and put away. Now this is really powerful. Your sins are forgiven you and they are put away. That is, the penalty is remitted. The sense of guilt is removed. And you are made upright and in right standing with God. Now this is what happens when a person's sins are forgiven. This is why it is so imperative that sins be forgiven. This is why it must be that we would confess our sins uh, to our Father God in the authority of Jesus. And when we do, our sins, the penalty, is remitted. The sense of guilt is removed. The person is made upright and in right standing with God. And these were the words to this young, to this man, whom Jesus referred to as son. And how old is Jesus? About 32. 31 maybe, something like that at the time. Do you ever wonder how people today think about somebody who's 30 or 31? Well, you got nothing to tell me because, I mean, you're just a kid yet. You're only 31. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is 30 years old when he begins his ministry. He's 33 years old approximately when he is crucified. Uh <laughs> let's not let's not be so eager now to think of those people who are in their 20s and 30s as just being 
you know, children. They're not children in any event. I say that to say that this individual likely was a relatively young person. Now, there's a reaction to the words of Jesus because the people are taken aback. The religious people, the religious people are taken aback. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there holding a dialogue with themselves as they questioned in their hearts. Now, this is really interesting because you see the dissenters, the religious individuals who are sitting there, they are observing everything that is taking place. And they see all this happening. And obviously, what happens when Jesus speaks these words is unexpected to everybody. No one's expecting him to say this. Yeah, heal him, perhaps they're expecting that. But he said, son, your sins be forgiven you. The penalty is remitted. In other words, the power of sin is broken over in your life. You are free now. The guilt has been removed from you. And you have been placed into a position of being upright and in right relationship with God. What wonderful news is this? But the religious individuals who are there observing all this, now they are not saying anything out out loud, but inside, down within themselves. They are... uh, uh, resisting this. They are questioning this. They are saying, oh, nobody can say these things. Um, this is false doctrine. This is false theology. See, What this man is saying is not right. And it's very interesting that um, when there is a real significant move of God, some of the very first people to resist it are religious people and it's still that way to this very day. Why is that? Because the truth will uh, come against and rebuke some of the traditions that we hold on to. I have a part of Charles Finney's autobiography on this whole subject of this kind of faith. You know, the faith that is of the heart. I'd like to read this a little bit to you. Charles Finney, of course... uh, in the 19th century was one of the greatest uh, evangelists, most well-known evangelists of the time, one of them. Um, If you lived then, you would know him as well as people today would know Billy Graham, probably. But he was a very powerful revivalist. He was a lawyer, trained as a lawyer, and of course he committed himself to full-time Christian service at a relatively early age in his life. But in his younger, uh, early days, as he was practicing law, and Charles Finney was, uh, of course, involved in a church and went to a church, and he was not a Christian. And I say this, he was not born again of the Spirit. And uh, he's writing now in this uh, autobiography about his experiences at that time, and I want to read just a little bit of this. He saw some things happening in the church that he attended from time to time, He saw some things happening that really troubled him. Now, there was an honesty within him that prompted him to question things that a lot of people just don't question. Some things need to be questioned. Before progress is made, oftentimes somebody has to question some things. Somebody has to say, now, why is that happening like that? Why is it happening that way? There's an... There seems to be a contradiction here. Why is it like that? It shouldn't be like that. Somebody has to ask those questions oftentimes and find the answer before progress is made. So he said there was an inconsistency. Let me read his words. 
this inconsistency, the fact that they prayed so much and were not answered, was a sad stumbling block to me. I knew not what to make of it. You see, here he is, a young man, attending a church, and in the church they are praying, 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 and nothing, 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 nothing is happening. It's amazing how we can become so religious that we don't even think about it. Somebody comes from the outside who's not, you know, religious, not raised in that kind of... He wasn't raised in all of his life from a child up. And he's a lawyer and he has a real keen mind and understanding, but at the same time the Spirit of God is drawing him at a spiritual level and he's saying, you know, what's wrong with this? How can this be right? How can this be true Christianity? When these people are praying all the time and there's no answers to any of their prayers. He says, it was a question in my mind whether I was to understand that these persons were not truly Christians, therefore did not prevail with God, or did I misunderstand the promises and teachings of the Bible on this subject, or was I to conclude that the Bible was not true? He doesn't know what to think. There was something inexplicable to me, and it seemed at one time that it would almost drive me into skepticism, skepticism, skepticism. See, Charles Finney was just a whisker away from becoming a skeptic. Some of the great minds of the past several hundred years, some of the greatest minds have been skeptics. They became skeptics. Because one of the reasons they became skeptics is because they could not reconcile the teachings of the Scripture with what they were seeing happening before them. And they could not accept it. They couldn't go on day after day, year after year, continually talking about these great, wonderful promises in the Word of God and experiencing none of them in their daily lives. They couldn't reconcile it. And they were honest enough, and I say this, they were honest enough to say there's something wrong here. Now, unfortunately, they did not continue to um, stay before the Lord until the answer came. The answer will come to those people if they will not go over into skepticism. I remember in my own search, in my own early years, I remember coming to this place, exactly to this very same place. And I remember I came to that place and was about to leap over this cliff into, cliff into skepticism myself and I somehow could not. And whenever I came to that place, I would say, I don't understand it, but I'll just wait. I'll just wait. And I'm so thankful that the Grace of God was there to persuade me to just wait. I don't know. I, I'm going to say this, and but I must preface it by saying um, there's a lot of things that we say, and and um, we don't want to be misunderstood. And sometimes, because we're so we don't want to be misunderstood, we don't say things. But we should say them. But we don't want to be misunderstood. You see. We're not critical. I, anything. I, I don't. I'm not. I don't want to be critical of anyone. I'm not criticizing anyone. But nevertheless, there are some things that we must say. I, uh, a short time ago, I was um, answered answered a telephone. Just a few weeks ago, I answered a telephone. Someone on the telephone said, "There's a need to pray for for somebody." Uh, Wilma Lee. We knew her as Wilma Lee Haddon. Grew up here on the island as Wilma Lee Haddon. They said on the telephone she has uh, 
been taken to Ottawa to a hospital because she has had a brain aneurysm. And I just happened to answer somebody else's phone. And I was delivering a message because I'd answered someone else's phone. They were in a prayer chain and so on. And, you know, would you pray for her? This is a real big time we get. To, we have to pray. That's wonderful to pray. The Bible, well, let me just say. And so I, I delivered the message. And so on. Because I'd answered the phone. And I delivered the message. And then a few days later, of course, Wilma Lee passed away. Now, I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm just saying, but the way in which we, the way things are done, the way at which we're, we're content somehow. And the individual to whom I had relayed the message, uh, several days later said these words to me. I didn't see how she could live anyway. I didn't see how she could have lived. And I, this was several days later. I didn't see how she could have lived. And I said, oh, well, why were you praying for her? If you didn't see how she could have lived. Isn't that why you were praying? <sighs> see, I'm not criticizing anyone. Because we find ourselves in those places, all of us. But I'm just saying this morning that the teachings of the Scripture is something different than that. And let me read on in this because uh, Charles Finney in his autobiography touches on this very same thing. On one occasion when I was in one of the prayer meetings, I was asked if I did not desire that they should pray for me. And I told them no. Can you imagine? You're in the meeting and somebody says in the meeting, Would you, can we pray for you? Would you like us to pray for you? And he said, No. <laughs> no. Because I did not see that God answered their prayers, and I said, I suppose I need to be prayed for, but I am conscious that I, for I'm conscious that I am a sinner, but I do not see that it will do any good for you to pray for me, for you are continually asking, but you do not receive. You have been praying for a revival of religion ever since I have been in Adams, and yet you have it not. You have been praying for the Holy Spirit to descend upon yourselves and yet complaining of your leanness, leanness in your soul. I recollect having used this expression at that time, quote, You have prayed enough since I have attended these meetings to have prayed the devil out of Adams, if there is any virtue in your prayers. But here you are praying on and complaining still. I was quite in earnest in what I said and not a little irritable. But on further reading of my Bible, I love this, but on further reading of my Bible, he says, it struck me that the reason why their prayers were not answered, the reason why their prayers was not answered. You see, he had, is it the Bible's not true? Yeah, all these questions. The reason why their prayer was not answered was because they did not comply with the revealed conditions upon which God had promised to answer prayer. They did not comply with the revealed conditions upon which God had promised to answer prayer. And what are those? That they did not pray in faith. They did not pray in faith. In the sense of expecting God to give them the things that they asked for. 
And I say further to that this morning that it's impossible to pray in faith until that is revealed to the Spirit. The confidence has to be inside. The confidence is not intellectual. The confidence that God will answer a certain prayer that's prayed in the name of Jesus, that absolute confidence is not intellectual confidence. And it's not determination of somebody who's strong-willed in their character. It is, it's based on a revelation to the heart, to the Spirit. I will answer that prayer if you call upon me in the name of Jesus. It is God's promise made to the heart of the human being, to the spirit of the human being, so that the human being on the inside knows, when I pray this, when I pray for this in the authority of Jesus' name, I know that God will answer it. How can anybody be that confident? Only if it is revealed. This is praying in faith. Now, Jesus saw these men, saw the faith of these four men. The religious scribes and so on there began to question, but not out loud. They began to question within themselves. And in verse number 8 it says, And at once Jesus, becoming fully aware in his spirit that they thus debated within themselves, said to them, Jesus knew, you see, within his spirit. He knew spiritually what they were thinking in their own minds and hearts. And as soon as he became fully aware of this, he addressed it. And he said to them, scribes and the religious people are gathered around, he said, what's easier to say? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man? Here's a question. What is easier to say to the paralyzed man? See, they were thinking inside. They were thinking, you cannot forgive his sins. You cannot say that his sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. Who do you think you are? That's what they were thinking. They didn't really know who he was. And so Jesus said, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven and put away, or to say, rise, take up your sleeping pad and start walking about, and keep on walking. What's easier to say? Then we come to verse number 10, but that you may know positively, but that you may know positively, and this is the importance of the supernatural and the miraculous realm in the persuading of the heart of man. But that you may know positively and beyond a doubt that the Son of Man has right and authority and power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, I say to you, arise, he's paralyzed, but I say to you, arise, and pick up your sleeping pad and go home. And if I can say that, and this man obeys me, then you tell me, religious people, what's easier to say, son, your sins be forgiven you, or to say, arise and take up your sleeping pad and go home. It says in verse 12, And he arose at once and picked up the pallet and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and recognized and praised and thanked God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Now, my heart uh, earnestly desires, and I know many of you would say the same, my heart earnestly desires a manifestation of the authority of Christ among His people so that we might say, we have never seen anything like this before. 
We have never seen anything like this before. Authority to command physical dysfunction provides confidence or faith in the authority to forgive sins. The authority to command physical dysfunction provides confidence or faith in the authority to forgive sins. Where there is a manifestation of the authority of Christ in the matter of physical dysfunction, sickness, disease of all kinds, paralysis, all kinds. And in that same environment there is an awareness of the authority of Christ to forgive sins. And when the sins are forgiven, then of course the penalty is remitted, the guilt is removed, the individual is made upright and in right standing with God. And that's the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel. May the Lord add his blessing to his own words. <clears throat>